Welcome to the Conversations with Jason Campbell and Henrietta Galina for this installment of my veteran fashion professional series. My guest is stylist, editor, and model Gianni Cucci. Hello, Gianni. Hello, Jason. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the Conversations. And I have been enjoying this series so much because I feel like I'm, I have the opportunity to really talk to, to old friends, people that I've been speaking to over the years about myriad issues in the industry and so forth. But Gianni, I got to tell you, in my, in my research about you, and we've known each other, let's say, for like 20 plus years. I know you from when At I was... At least. I, I don't know exactly, but it's been more than 20 years for sure. Uh, it's certainly, certainly. So we've known each other for some time. But Gianni, I got to tell you, there is a, at least for me, there is a, there is a gap or I need for you to tell your story. Because as much as I know about you, I feel like I know your story in pieces. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you today for you to fill in some of the blanks. But what I do know is that you have a very very storied history in this business of fashion, and and I want to hear more about it. So without further ado, uh, Gianni, let's dive right into this. Let's do it. I I described you as a stylist and editor and model, but please, it's for you to define yourself. Tell me how you define yourself in this fashion space. I describe myself, I would say, like a visual entrepreneur. Oh, okay. Okay. That's a, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful umbrella. And in our multi-hyphenated world, we know how that is. And so you, for the, for the three, for the three titles that I used for you, you literally have existed in each of these spaces independently. So they are warranted. Now, Gianni, I know that you're from the Caribbean. Our years really was in Europe. And I am so fascinated by your time here in America, because I have, I've been hearing your voice and I've been seeing your presence, but please, can you take me and our audience on that journey? And, you know, I have myriad questions for you, but if you would kind of give me like the broad stroke of your journey from the Caribbean to London, Paris, and to New York. Okay, so I was born in Martinique, which is a French uh, colony. And uh, so I live, I was born and raised in Martinique. I lived there until I was 13 years old. And then I moved to Paris and uh, at 13, which was like kind of traumatizing because uh, I arrived in the middle of the winter. And um, I hated it for the first year, but after I got used to it. And so I live in Paris. I was studying to be an accountant. And I met this woman for a friend of mine. For me, the word stylist, when I heard the word stylist, was like a designer. I never knew about the word like stylist as someone, you know, who bring clothes for a shoot, you know, all that narrative. So we start talking and, you know, we were discussing and I asked her what she was doing. And she told me that she was a stylist. So I said, oh, you design clothes? She said, no, 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 I'm not designing clothes. I'm actually the one who's choosing the clothes for the shoot. So she started to explain to me what she was doing and 
all these amazing locations. She was going to Tahiti, the Seychelles, Mauritius Island, Seychelles. And I was like, oh my God, that sounds like a really, really cool job. And uh, we kind of lost touch. And uh, maybe like a year or two after I met her, I was looking for a magazine. It was uh, The magazine was called Femme. It was at the time one of the biggest fashion magazines in France. And by that time, she already became the fashion director of the magazine. So I'm like, you know what? I wasn't sure where I wanted you know, to be. The only reason I started studying you know, accountancy because I, want, I really wanted to be a dancer and my mom was quite conservative. She's like, this is not a proper job. So you, so, and my mom was an accountant. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to study accountancy. And I decided to give her a call and she basically took me under her wings and I started working with her. Not directly. So I basically, I started, I was the person who was in charge of receiving and returning the clothes from shoot. So I don't know the the, the term in England in English. But yeah, I was in charge of, you know, receiving and returning the clothes. And I did that for about two years, two and a half years. And a, a main assistant was leaving and she offered me the position to become a first assistant. And that woman's name is uh, Marielle Robot. Well Gianni, I want to go back to I want to go back to you studying accountancy and what that means. And I, I want to make this point specifically because I'm speaking to the variety of Black experiences. And, you know, you said that you're from the Caribbean, you're from Martinique at the onset of this. It's not always understood that Caribbean parents are as strict and education focused like any Chinese tiger mom. I want to anchor you in that. In that <laughs> I love Chinese tiger mom. <laughs> well, in that place for a moment, you know, because I think it's not always understood. For example, I spoke to uh, Lisa Cooper and Karen Bins in a in a in a previous in two previous episodes, and they were telling me if their genesis becoming is being nightlife. They they came through the wrongs at nightlife, and that's really how they entered fashion. And you uh-huh. you're essentially you were studying accounting, but for a conservative. <laughs> Martinique mom, she was like, you need to study accounting because fashion wasn't even a, a, a perceived direction at that time. It seemed to have just landed in your lap. Yeah, even, you know, I think my mom, you know, you know, I think all parents at the end of the day, they want the best for the for the children. But I think it's that old school. I think it's not only in the Caribbean. It's also in Africa. I think it's like, you know, it's either doctor, lawyer or accountant, you know, that type of, you know, you know what That's I mean. Solid. Solid, you know, Solid nine to five, nine to five job, exactly. Okay, okay. So, so you found your way into fashion via the via the introduction of this stylist that you didn't even know what the world of styling was. It was these were the early days. The, you know, these things didn't have hard. Yeah, which I'm talking about eighty seven, eighty eight, maybe I think around eighty six, eighty seven, something like that. Okay, so it's really important to understand this period. But but Gianni, this was also the period of the Paris years. This is when oh, know, absolutely. The, the sexy energy of Paris was at a at a nexus. Tell me about those intoxicating years of working in the belly of the fashion industry, even though it's not, you know, you were, this was the start of your career, but tell me about your feelings during that period, you know, in this business of fashion. 
Oh, it was amazing. I enjoy every minute of it. You know, I was going, we were going to shows. We are part, we are working hard and parting hard. Let's put it this way. <laughs> I love Palais. <laughs> this was but a, it was, this was a great a time. And, and he wasn't like, I don't, you know, because you have to understand, he wasn't, it was free way before social media. And I think at the time, you know, the designer was uh, very accessible. I remember partying at Le Bandouge in the Palace with Patrick Kelly. I met uh, Thierry Mugler, Jean-Paul Gauthier, Issey Miyake. I mean, that was a little bit later, but John Galliano. I mean, it was very, it was very easy to meet designers and to hang out with them. Well, and let's stay in Paris here for a moment. I mean, you know, Historically, Black people, let's say American Black people, have gone to Paris. We have Josephine Baker, and, and we have our writer there, our Mr. Baldwin, of course, who's moved yes. to Paris to find their liberation. And of course, those designers, you may have mentioned Patrick Kelly. You know, Blacks have been going to Paris for greater acceptance for a long time. Was there a certain feeling of liberation during this period, being a Black woman, you know, working in fashion? I think it was, I mean, it never, the question never crossed my mind, but I think it was, it was great. It was a great time to work in fashion, especially starting in fashion. Mm-hmm. As a young, this- as a young, as a young Black woman, it was a great time to, to, to you know, I mean, also it wasn't, it wasn't that many of us. I mean, I'm pretty sure you can relate to that as well. Of course. And uh, it wasn't that many Black people working in fashion at the time. Not many designers, not many stylists or hairdressers or makeup artists. You know, it wasn't that many of us. At all, at all. And there was also, let's be honest, you know, this was was around the post-AIDS, mid-AIDS kind of situation. I think what what a lot of people fail to recognize is that there were there was a sort of a omission of a lot of on the rise talent during this period. Like a lot of the on the rise talent essentially died out. And there, you know, there was a time where people, talents in fashion, just wanted to have a good time. It was after a very, a very dark period. And actually the hangover of that dark period was still there. So there was a desire for, for something lighter. And there was also space to work. So I, I do want to sort of like culturally frame that period as well. It wasn't the period of, of and you know, these are the 80s. You know, this was, you know, this was the heady 80s of a lot of money and a lot of celebration. And as you said, La Bandouche and all these kind of places, this was like a, this was a fun time. It was a fun time because the thing is, I think we were working, like I said earlier, we were working hard and partying hard. So we were doing both and we were enjoying both as well. I mean, I wasn't afraid, you know, sometimes I would go to the club and just go home, take a shower and go straight to work. Oh, remember those days. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, obviously I can't do that anymore. I'm I'm a little bit older, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an issue. It was like, okay, you get a, you get on with it. Well, you met and I'm sure had relationships with myriad talents during that period. But I have to say one relationship that just keeps cropping up for, for, for that I've read about is your relationship with, with Judy Blaine. Now, oh, did you meet my her around dear. this period or this was later? Tell me about the relationship with this incredible oh, fashion. I will, I will never forget the day I met Judy. It was at my late friend, 
stylist, very talented French stylist, Claire Dupont. She did a dinner at her apartment. And uh, it was a very intimate dinner. It was only like about 10 of us. And John Galliano was there. It was actually the, the, the first night I met both of them at the same time. But for some reason, Judy and I, we just clicked. It was just like organic. I don't know how to explain. We just start dancing and talking and we just clicked. That was in early 90s. I think it was probably 90 or 91. Okay. And uh, yeah, so we stay in touch. And uh, it was the reason why I moved to London in 94. And and that was a really seminal, that was a really seminal period. This was during your work with, as a contributing editor for, for ID Magazine. Uh, this is when you're uh, working with Edward Inningful uh, exactly. for a period of time. Exactly. I mean, I met Edward, actually, same thing. I met Edward uh, around the same time as Judy. I met Edward, I think I met Edward through Andrew Walker. We were introduced back, uh, backstage at the Comme des Garçons show, if my memory doesn't fail me. And yes, I probably met Edward in like early 90s as well, yeah. So it's around the same time. And when I moved to London, Judy was like, you know, I was coming out of a breakup. And uh, Judy was like, just come to London and, you know, I will help you out. He was just like so generous and, you know, and kind. And, and I'm, you know, in my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to London for a few months and see, you know, and just taste the water. And I ended up living there for 16 years. It's amazing how a period, how quickly a period like that can, um, um, can pass, isn't it? Like 16 years. Now, during this period, Gianni, I'm more than certainly, you know, we're, we're, we're traversing the fashion capitals and we certainly see each other during this period. But I have to say, I feel like something happened when you moved to America. Now, how long actually have you been living in the U.S.? I moved to the U.S. in the September 2000, 2009, so it's going to be almost 12 years. Okay, okay. So you have definitely been in the U.S. a significant period of time to understand that culture, because I have to say, and before, before I, I get ahead of myself, before I get ahead of myself, let me ask some sort of foundational questions here. Did you need to experience living in the U.S. to ignite a fire of activism? Because I feel like you're, since you have been in the U.S., that you have been a real voice in this industry. And I'm wondering if it's the U.S. that did that to you, or was there a turning point around that period that essentially steered you into a lane of activism? I think I was already an activist before I moved to the to the U.S., but my voice, let's put it busy, was unheard. Okay. And for some reason, it gets, you know, it got more, you know, it got bigger here. I don't know. I don't know if it's because I'm French. I don't know. I, I just think it just, you know, people heard me more when I moved to America, in New York, to New York. Well, and, and, you know, just to frame it for our audience, how I have perceived Gianni over the last decade or so is as an unrelenting activist for particular along the lines of racial causes, but for sure you do not ignore other social uh, injustices that are out there. And your voice has been consistent and has been ardent. Like you have really stayed on top of issues and it seems as though you have made no apologies. And it, it, to be perfectly honest, it, it, seems that, it seems that it has been activism at all costs. 
And it has also been very, very interesting and very stunning to see where the culture has met you. So all that has taken place over the last year, I just have seen that as uh, sort of like, oh, you naturally folding into the work that you have been doing for a long time in advance of that. And I thought that was a stunning, I thought that was a stunning thing to happen. Like there was nothing disingenuous about, about your activism meeting this sort of amplified period of activism that we're experiencing now is essentially what I'm saying. Yeah. No, no, you're right. Absolutely. And also the the interesting thing I'm I'm going to say, it's, uh, I mean, of course we know there is racism everywhere, but, the racism in Europe is different from the racism in America. Break that down for us. Break that down. Uh, how can I break it down? I mean, it's having here in America, it's more in your face. In Europe, okay. it's there, but it's a little bit more subtle, more like kind of there's more, you know, and how can I explain that? It's, I think the, the racism in America is blatant. You, okay. you know, if, unless you're blind, you, you know, you, you, can't, you can't miss it. Just for example, I mean, I have nothing related to fashion, but I never, before I moved to America, I never heard of so many black people getting shot. For me, it was the most shocking thing. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and people, and people, whatever it was, the policeman or the, poli- the person who killed, not, not, you know, not getting accountable for, what they, for the crime they did. So do you feel that America, the American culture, is really what confronted you in a jarring way? Like you were like, wait a minute, this, this blatant overt racism that I'm experiencing here, that, that's something new for you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So that's what you felt ignited your, ignited, you know, this, this, this fire of activism, if you will. I just, you know, I just, I just couldn't stay silent about it, you know, I... You know, I would have feel very guilty if I stay silent about it. Let's put it this way. Now, um, was there any shame to your game as to how much toxicity you allowed yourself to endure, Gianni? Because I'm starting to recognize a kind of like PTSD from our community. Some, some, some are only just starting to wake up as to how they were complicit in keeping themselves down. And I, I'm, I'm sort of juxtaposing this against this activism conversation because I have to say, I felt, and, and, and I, I'll speak for myself in this instance here. In many ways, I was, I played the polite Negro for, and, and, and mind you, I'm a voice and I'm a voice who have written and have podcasted on issues, but still I wasn't, you know, I wasn't always staying on top of these issues. I would I would make it comfortable for my white counterparts. I would make them, I would create spaces for them to be, feel comfortable. And in hindsight, I realized that I, I kind of contributed to them feeling comfortable in their sort of institutional racism. Was there any sort of recognition like that for you? Yeah, I don't think we should feel get, um, guilty about it because I think we were conditioned to, be, to behave like that. And there was some what? sort of awakening who came in, you know, in us, and we realize, hold on a minute, this is not right. What the way we behave, the way we act, is not right. And like you say earlier, some people, you know, some people now, you know, it took to, you know, to recognize that. But uh, you know, but, uh, as I say, better late than never. Absolutely, absolutely. And do you feel that the energy, the energy that we are experiencing right now, the the reckoning that you know that it's being referred to as 
Do you feel that this is veritable, that this will stay, that we can impact real, sustainable change via the energy of the moment? It had to stay. I mean, I will fight until the end for, you know, to make, you know, make the change I can for, you know, for sure. And every, every one of us have to do their part. 100%, 100%. I just wonder, you know, I, I sometimes think that we are in a, we're in an industry that we have not controlled, but yet we really are asking to share in the, in the effort where I, I'm, I'm trying to change my language around a seat at the table because it's not necessarily, it's not always necessarily about a seat, seat at the table, but it's a share in the pie. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, We have to unify because I think, I'm not talking in general, but I think some of us, some of the Black people who have been positioned in power in fashion, they were so scared that other of us come along that, you know, they were basically protecting their belonging, if you know what I mean. They have to be the only Black person in, you know, in position of power. And I think that those kind of conversation really needs to start, needs to start. Oh, we have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is an elephant in the room. So we have to, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, absolutely. I don't think that there is cover. I don't think that there is cover for any Black people who are, let's say, self-interested or malintended in this period either, because, you know, Henriette and I have spoken about you know, some toxic work environment being replaced by other toxic work environment. And I don't necessarily yeah. think that, that those issues are not being, those issues are not being discussed and the perpetrators are Black people. And so I've also recognized, I've also recognized in this period that there's been a, there's been a bit of a jockeying for position. I think some Black people have recognized that this is a time for them to get theirs, not necessarily in, in the interest of the wider Black community, but in their self-interest. This uh, is the, uh, the, the self-interest, exactly. That's what I wanted, yeah. And I think that that is a dangerous, dangerous direction because A, it questions the motivation of those that have jumped in the, in the front of the line. And then what does it mean for the movement going forward? That means that it's erected on, on ground that's not particularly solid. Oh, it's definitely a, a slippery slope. You know, it's like basically they're saying the message is I'm working for me, myself and I, and I don't care about my community. I have to say, I recognize quite a bit of this. Now, Gianni, how have you been tapped in this period? You know, we spoke about your voice being amplified uh, during this during this period. And, and I would say that like your Instagram has forced a lot of that attention. I think when you post things, I think it forces attention because of its unbelievable truth, because of its rawness. And please delve into that a little bit for me in how you're in, in the amplification of your position during this, let's say, during the pandemic. Oh, I mean, the pandemic, you know, it make, I think the pandemic, I mean, it's horrible what happened with this pandemic, but I think it's, there was like some positive thing about it, which is like, it opened some people's eyes. Because I remember when I was talking about issue about racism, about us, and some people will always say to me, oh, you know, you're taking a notch too far, you're over-exaggerated. And, and now the same people who used to say that to me, and it's like, I'm so sorry, I, I, I didn't understand what you mean at the time. Yeah, there's a bit of that correction going on, isn't there? 
but but Gianni, what I'm also recognizing is in this period that a lot of the work that you're doing, you're working with long-standing, you're long, working with long-standing friends. You're working with people that, you know, that you have been in this industry with for a long time. And it just seems like a natural, a natural collaboration. But what has taken some of those collaborations so long? Why? Oh, that's a good question. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, people, some people wake up early and some people, it takes them time. It takes time. So I guess, you know, that's for this. Yeah, that's pretty much that. You did say better late than never. So I I, I can appreciate, um, you know, some people waking up in this era. And looking in your and looking in your in your direction for sure. Well, one also probably the 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 most significant voice or visible presence that you have in this industry at present is um is uh, Ubiquitous, your magazine that yes. I have to say, Gianni, that exists almost as an anomaly. This is a a a, a black owned property. Why does it almost exist singularly? Have we fought hard enough for our our cell phone properties? We still have to fight. I mean, we still have a lot of fighting to do, believe me. It's not easy. It's not easy to... I remember when I launched Ubiquist uh, five years, uh, almost six years ago now, everyone thought I was crazy. And even my friend was like, you should just shouldn't do it because it's too hard. I mean, tell you the truth, I have no idea what I was getting myself into, but (laughs) absolutely, it's very hard. It's a work in progress, but absolutely, I have no regrets. None. Uh, And and just to look on the newsstand and not to see, you know, to see our cultural influence so far and wide, but to not, to barely see a publication that covers our culture and our interest in an age like this seems like really uh, an offense and an affront to our community. It is. I mean, my my wish is, it's, uh, I hope I'm going to inspire other, other people, to, you know, to do their own publication. And and I hope Ubiquist is going to inspire them to do that. that. That's the purpose as well. Because I believe there is space for everyone, you know. It, Ubiquist doesn't have to be singled out by itself. We can have another ubiquitous. I mean, it's going to be another name, but yeah, I think there is space for you know for all of us there. Absolutely, I think there's definitely space for 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 more players. But what is startling to me is is just the lack of that representation, it, particularly in recent times. And I mean, let's be honest, we're talking about the decade prior to now, and certainly now, if we look out there, we're literally. I mean. <laughs> There are no entities that are out there, really, with the exception of Ubiquits, that's, uh, that's, covering, that's covering the community. Mm. And, and, and speaking to the attention that you're getting from the fashion industry as a whole, you know, I was so struck by your recent issue having Angela Davis on the cover. You're, you know, inside, you're, you're, you're covering talents and, and personalities like a Valerie Amos that are on your pages. Have the advertisers... Have the you know have the fashion community come to support your your editorial property in in, in the way that it should be? Unfortunately, no. It's even still, in this uh, period. It, even in this period, you know, like I say, it's funny you say that because a few days ago, 
I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and uh, we kind of felt like laughing about it. Like we were like, how many companies put those black square, you know, a few months ago? And what's the result now? Nothing. You know, we I, 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 basically of, we basically like back to square one. It's, a lot of that was definitely performative. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and we knew, I mean, you and... I think a few of us know about that, you know? We know the fuckery when we say it, basically. Excuse my French. Absolutely, but but still, still yet. And that's why we, you know, that's why we need to have these kind of conversations to remind people that anything can just be said out there. Anything just can be put out there. But if there's no follow-through and if it doesn't actually happen, it does, then it didn't happen. This was just, you know, this was just using an opportunity, you know, to promote something that is, in fact, not not genuine to your organization. I mean, just to, to, to give you an example, still, I mean, I created, yeah, I created the magazine six, almost six years ago. Still to this day, there is some big brand that refused to lend me clothes for the magazine. And there is no in, reason. In this... And they, they don't even give you a reason. It's just, don't, it just don't respond to your email. They just, you know, they just, it's just, it's just ignoring me. And Gianni, how do you how do you combat, let's say, let's say a blatant racist act like that? I mean, someone else may not put it in such a way, but I will ca- I will uh, call it a blatantly racist act because we know, you know. We oh, know it is it is racism. It is racism, and uh, it's even worse because they will be because you know when I talk to some friends, they're like, oh yeah, but this one is using black model. I say it's called tokenism. They're probably okay. using black model, but they won't let me borrow clothes for my black fabrication. What's you know? What's the problem? Okay, so least least the general audience out there thinks that you know fashion has worked in in quick order to clean up its house in a real way. That's simply not the case because if there is a if there's a, a single black publication out there. That's not attracting, you know, that's not attracting the the advertisers, the advertisers that occupy the space. And of course, this is giving a nod to the epidemic that we're we're in, the pandemic that we're in. Still yet, that interest has not been showed to your organization. No, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Don't be fooled because they're using black model. That's not enough. I'm sorry. It's good, but it's not enough. It's absolutely not enough. It's absolutely not enough. What's your view? What's your midterm to long-term view on these changes, though, Gianni, that we're, that we're asking for, you know? In, in one breath, there's cynicism. In another breath, there's hopefulness. What really encapsulates your feeling on where we're going? I'm trying to remain optimistic about the future. So I think that, I mean, slowly, I have to say, some of our brand will ignore me, a few of them, are starting slowly coming to the magazine. So we're already having a conversation. And you know what, you know, how it works in this business. You just need to be maybe, you just need maybe like two or three big brands and the rest will follow. But you need just two or three big brands in the magazine and usually the rest follow. They like, you know, they like shapes basically. They don't want to take risk, but once there is one or two or three would take the risk, like, okay, we're just going to follow, you know. Have those media buying conversation changed? You know, are any things being, being expressed differently? Is there any sense of reparation? Is there any sense of almost gratuitous um, support 
simply because it's been overdue and disproportionate in the past? Is there any sense of that at all? No, we're not there yet. <laughs> not quite. <laughs> we still have a long way really, to go. Even, let's, not give them not prop, let, let's not give them props yet. <laughs> But that's the thing, though, Gianni. That is that is the thing. You know, what concerns me is that I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to one of the leaders of, of like, I, as far as I'm concerned, the only Black publication that's still out there. If, if you're not broadcasting this information to the wider industry, to the industry as a whole, uh-huh. that they know what is and what is not taking place, I'm just afraid that this information is going to be, you know, because fashion has like has been a, a very closed door, has operated on a closed door policy for a very long time. I'm just feeling that this kind of bad behavior, this kind of dis- discrimination, this disenfranchisement will only continue to happen unexposed. And then our advancement is going to continue to be stymied. And so that's what I'm concerned about is that this information is not out there for public consumption where they can impact, you know, the pace of change um, that it's in a very small, it's in a very small group of people who knows really what's going on behind the scenes. That's oh, what concerns me. Oh, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, last year, uh, to tell you a little story, last year, someone, I mean, not a friend, uh, someone that I know contacted me to, to do an interview for a big organization. So I just peeled out the truth, and uh, the interview came out, and half of it was cut. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, really? So they didn't even, they couldn't even come they could, in. You couldn't to even take, the they truth. couldn't even take the truth. It was too much for them. Wow, wow. And we have to, we have to recognize that. We have to recognize that, Gianni. The audience has to understand that this is going up, that there's still some sort of censoring there's still a sort of selective doling out of information to create, to, to not have anyone feel uncomfortable, or at least to not have some people feel uncomfortable because the, the, the conversation becomes too raw or what you're exposing is just too raw. That's yeah, because I was exposing, basically I was exposing the labels who haven't supported the magazine and I single every, you know, every name, every, and they cut all the name out. You know that that's not the first time I've that's not the first time I've heard. Actually, you know, um, someone that I know was in a very similar situation when it came to actually calling out the labels and calling out their practices, stating who didn't participate and why they didn't participate. That became verboten. That was like a no no. Yeah. Like to actually name the players, it was like, oh no 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 no. Well, we can't do that. Well, then what are we really talking? So about? I'm like, why do you contacting me for an interview? You tell me you want me to tell the truth. I'm telling you the truth. So what's, you know? Ah, well, it's funny, you know, I have to relay a story that I experienced this week as well with a, with a, with a, a friend and someone who's been, has long roots and deep roots in this industry. And she had got, gotten herself in a bit of a controversy and she was coming to me to discuss the, the, the controversy and sort of her role in it. And I have to, I had to express to her, I felt that she was coming to me for cover mm-hmm. and I, and I, I had to sort of push back and tell her that there was not. I didn't feel that she was being suitably accountable to what went down. And in fact, I felt that she may have been taken a tact of, of almost burying the, the complainants rather than leaning into a bit of compassion 
where the complainants were concerned. Uh-huh. And what I did, what I recognized in that moment, and this was not just about this one friend, you know, in fact, it had taken place with other, and this was a white friend, just to be um, 100% explicit here, that white people are coming to us, to people like us, still for cover. Like, the, the exchange is still too uncomfortable for them to really lean into this. Maybe you can express a little bit about the role that you have played in this equation for your white counterparts. Oh my God, don't get me started on that, honey. Please get started. <laughs> I don't think the day is going to be enough to tell you about all the stories. Uh, just to tell you a little story uh, which happened last summer, there's this stylist, English stylist who live in New York, You know, I really like her work and I contacted her a few years ago, maybe two or three years ago, because I wanted her to to collaborate uh, for Ubiquist. So we have a meeting, you know, I bought copies of the magazine and she said, oh, I love the magazine. You know, I will get back to you. Never heard back from her in two or three years. And last summer I received not even a call. I received a DM via Instagram. She's working for a publication in uh, England and she was doing a profile on a black actress and the actress requested uh, a black writer, black photographer, black writer, you know, black team. And she found herself in a situation that she found out she didn't know any black people to write an article. So she contacted me. (laughs) So I was like the nerves of that woman. Like, you know, you never got back to me about my publication and now you're in trouble because that person, that actress wouldn't do the interview if she not, you know, have a black journalist doing it. And you suddenly you need my help. It's just basically, I don't need to say any more about that story. And we also have to recognize that in that moment, you know, at least how it sounds to me, this person was not using, taking this opportunity. Well, she took several <laughs> years to, to, if I get back to you, but she wasn't taking the opportunity, you know, to learn from this period. She was just trying to fill in, in the blank of this talent that she wanted for, for, for her publication. And she was filling in the blanks by getting a black journalist and so on and so forth. And she, in fact, would reach out to someone far back in her past yeah, that, in fact, she did not really <laughs> engage with to create her solution. So you also, we also have to look at how porous, <laughs> how porous a situation like that, <laughs> like that is as well, and 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 how disingenuous ultimately uh, that is. So yes, and I, 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 I'm, I'm sure our our black counterparts will have more of these kind of stories to relay about what, in fact, is going on. In no, because you like, your, you know, you like the audacity. I mean, I wouldn't even think about doing something like that. But in this age, in this age, when you find egg on your face and you're like, oh, my gosh, there's this storm around me <laughs> where, you know, Black people and people of color are looking to be recognized, to be seen and heard, and you realize that you have not been seeing or hearing them all of your professional career, yeah, you get a bit panic and you're, you're going to try to um, oh, uh, upturn any stone that you can to, you know, to, to get, the, you know, to get what you need. So, yeah, I see how it becomes a bit of a panic moment for, for, for some of the players in this industry. Now, Gianni, one of the things that I, that I pick up from your, from your posts on Instagram and that, that sort of is an important part of your narrative and storytelling is that you pay homage to the ancestors and predecessors 
whose thinking has helped to shape your worldview, particularly as it relates to the issues that we're speaking about in this forum? Oh, my God, there are so many. I mean, the, the way I was brought up is always respect to the elders. That's, you know, that's my motto, one, one of them. And I, I, have, I have to be, I haven't been inspired by, you know, by so many people. I mean, in no particular order, there is uh, this Rémy Césaire, which just, you know, which is like one of Martinique treasure. He's a, he was a politician, a writer, philosopher, cultural luminaries. James Baldwin, uh, Zora Neale Hurston. I mean, there is so many. I mean, I'm... I'm lost for word now, but there, there, yeah, there is, you know, people like, you know, what's the name, this actress, which I love, uh, Freddie Washington, who was, she was, do, I don't know if you remember that movie um, with Lana Turner. I think there was like two versions, actually. I forgot, no. the, I forgot the title of the I'm movie, not... but she was playing, it was a late, she was like a black, Light-skinned girl who was passing you. She wanted to be white. And not there are two faces that are that I'm seeing, but the not Lena Horn, but the names that Lena Horn is one of them. But the other name is not coming. Is not is not coming uh, to me. To so me her right name now. was Freddie Washington, um, and she was a big advocate uh, for the black cause. Uh, and you have to remember, it wasn't easy at the time. I mean, we're talking about like the 40s, 50s in Hollywood, you know. And there is also what's the name? The famous one who was playing with Harry Belafonte. Maddie, Maddie, Dorothy, Maddie, Dorothy, Dandridge, Maddie, Dorothy Dandridge. Dorothy Dandridge, yes. That's the other one. That's the light skinned one that you were oh, yeah. talking about. Yes, yes. Dorothy, yes. Like these kind of figures who um, their stance may not have been popular at the time, but they still, they still took a position and were vocal about yeah. it. Yeah. And recently uh, in front, there is this actress that I love, black actress called Aisha Maiga. She wrote, her yes. and uh, eight other black actresses wrote the experience of racism in the, in the showbiz, you know, world in France, like, you know, being a black actress in France. <laughs> which, which, that's a whole other oh, conversation absolutely. as well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, yeah, like, I, because uh, that, that's one of the, that, that, that's a, a real difference, I have to say, that's not always discussed, is like the black identity in Europe juxtaposed against the black identity in, uh, in America is a very different energy and is not always, is not always understood from one to the next. Uh, both of us have, have had uh, the experience and exposure, you know, to those to both cultures, and so we have a perspective. But I think it's really important to to delineate. I won't get too deeply into it right now because I do have some some strong opinions on. Oh, you're right. It is. Of- it is because you know I'm. I remember. You know, it's just like I remember like seeing my black American friends in Paris how they were received, and you know, with like and. Us, like from the West Indies or Africa, it's it's a, it was a different agenda. Definitely, definitely something I would like to break out, and maybe Henrietta and I will break that out in a in a in a distinct podcast. But yes, they're they're real. They're tremendous differences there. And then on the final note, Gianni, um, what's your forecast now for the the cadre of young black designers and stylists and that group that's happening now what's your what's your feeling on on their futures uh i hope the, their future is going to be bright the thing is it's it's happened 
you know, it's just happened so suddenly. So it's kind of ironic at the same time because it's like you see black everywhere. It's, it's like we never seen so many black stylists. A photographer is starting a little bit, but stylist and makeup in like major publication. I mean, I'm not going to name them because I don't want to advertise for them, but you know what, what I'm talking about. And it's just yeah. like this, uh, we we almost, of, maybe it's not the right word, but we almost suffocating now because there are so many of them. It's like those people have been around for quite a you know, quite a while now, maybe a few of them, the young one in the last few years, and suddenly they're all coming out of the woodwork, like they're just in your face, and it's like, oh my God, suddenly you realize that black people are existing, black talent are existing, hmm. but, you know, I'm well, all you know, for being also, positive, as I say, so I hope it's not going to be a trend, that's all I can say. Well, on that note, that seems like a great note to punctuate this conversation on, Gianni. Thank you so much for weighing in on this. I feel like I have been downloaded quite a bit more information on you and your trajectory. And I, I hope that we can talk again in the future on, on some of these. I aspects. really, really hope so. It was great talking to you, Jason. And I hope to, I hope to see you, team. to see your beautiful face soon in live, not over the phone. Indeed. 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 We'll have to rectify that. <laughs> no, hopefully soon. <laughs> Thanks, Gianni. Thank you, darling. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Ciao. Uh, it's my time for something.